Well, no event is quite as pressure-packed as a wedding. Hopefully, it's a -a once-in-a-lifetime festivity. Everybody involved is under the gun. The photographer, the florist, the musicians, the caterers, even the pastor. But the toughest job on wedding day, by far, belongs to the father of the bride. He has to give away his princess, the apple of his eye. He turns her over to another man, if you call him that, a man. He's usually fresh out of college. His most significant job has been delivering pizzas. And you're going to trust him with the lifelong care of your most precious possession? It's almost too much to ask of a man. One thing is for sure. By the wedding day, a wise father has made sure that that groom is properly vetted. I spent a whole year grilling and quizzing my prospective son-in-law. I left no stone unturned. I had a checklist longer than the Jiffy Lube. I performed a 40-point inspection on that young man. I wasn't going to entrust the leadership and care of my daughter to just anybody. He had to pass muster. And this is how God feels about His church. The church is the darling of heaven. It's the envy of the angels. It is the bride of Christ. And God isn't going to turn the leadership of His daughter over to just anyone. The Lord expects church leaders to possess an exemplary character. They too need to pass muster. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, God gives us a Jiffy Lube-like inspection for church leaders. A character checklist. Verse 1 begins. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop... He desires a good work. Now, the New Testament uses three titles for church leaders. Same person, different titles. Bishop, elder, pastor. Check it out. Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter chapter 5. All three of those titles get used interchangeably for the same person. Elder refers to the man himself, his maturity. Pastor or shepherd, that's what he does with the flock. He shepherds them. This illustrates the man's method. Bishop is the Greek word episkopos. Epi means over in scopus, to scope out, to scrutinize. Thus, episkopos oversees. This speaks of what a leader does, his ministry. He views the big picture. He oversees the spiritual health of the church. And though this is all hard work, Paul here tells us this is a good work. Three ingredients factor into the qualifications for church leaders. Gender, giftedness, and character. And as with the person who marries your daughter, gender and character are the most vital of those three. And so it is with the church leader. You know, sadly, today's church stresses the structure of church government. There's all kinds of debates, all kinds of theories, while the character of its leaders gets neglected. Hey, the New Testament, on the other hand, is flexible with structure, but it is uncompromising as to the character of the men who occupy the positions. You see, you can have the best structure possible, but it's worthless if it's filled up with ungodly people. This is why throughout Paul's letters, you'll find little outlining church government, whereas Paul has much to say on the quality and caliber of the men who are leading. 
He begins here in verse 2. A pastor then must be blameless. Just because a pastor preaches well, he can't be a crook or cuss out the umpire at the church softball game or hide from his creditors or cheat on his income tax or neglect his wife and kids. He has to live in such a way that earns respect. Reminds me of the pastor who embezzled $25,000 of the church funds. One of the elders was really mad. He said, we need to find him and get him back here so he can work off the money he owes us. That guy's kind of missed the point. Here, a bishop must be blameless. Not sinless now, just blameless. We all are going to slip up in sin, including pastors. But we should repent immediately and keep short accounts and repair the damage that was done. The Greek word translated blameless means nothing to take hold of. There should be no glaring, blatant issues in my life that an outsider can point his finger at and accuse me or the message that I preach. Obviously, there was much in Paul's past to incriminate him. But his past had been dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now his life was a testimony to God's amazing grace. See, for us, the question becomes, are there current issues in my life that might discredit the message that I preach or the Savior that I serve or the church that I represent? Is my life blameless? One day, as St. Francis was walking down the street, a young boy, he reached out from the bushes and he grabbed Francis' coat and he started tugging on it. The man looked down at him and the little boy looked into his eyes and he pleaded with him. He said, please, sir. Be as good as we think you are. We need leaders who are as good as we think they are. Leaders who are blameless. Now notice this next qualification. The husband of one wife. This is a hotly debated phrase. There's one group that says this is a ban on polygamous holding church office. Polygamy was a popular practice among first century pagans. Other folks, though, insist that this verse refers to people who have been divorced and remarried, essentially eliminating a divorced person from serving as a pastor or for an elder. I don't think either interpretation really gets at the heart of what Paul wants to communicate here. A literal translation of this phrase would be rendered a one-woman man. The husband of one wife, or a one-woman man. Paul's concern isn't so much the man's marital status as it is his attitude toward purity and toward women. You see, a man may have been married for 50 years to the same woman and not be a one-woman man. He's had women on the side. Or he's been a flirt. Or he's had a fascination with pornography. Or his eyes have just wandered around the room from woman to woman. His thoughts and his desires are obviously not focused on a single woman. Whereas a divorcee has repented of any wrongdoing in his previous marriage. He's renewing his mind now. He's now deeply devoted to this one woman that he's remarried to and that he loves. This is the fellow to me that qualifies as a one woman man. Bible commentator Kenneth Wiest, he puts it like this. We speak of the Airedale dog as a one man dog. It's his nature to become attached to only one man. Since character is emphasized by the Greek construction, it's the bishop's nature to isolate and centralize his love. This also has implications for a church leader who happens to be single. Though he's unmarried, 
He still needs to be a one-woman man. You hire Pastor Casanova and you got trouble. Pastor Romeo is going to stir up problems in the church. He's going to disrupt unity. He should wait patiently on the one woman that God has for him. Well, here's more of the checklist. The bishop or elder needs to be temperate. That means self-controlled. It's the opposite of having a temper, being temperate. A tempered man, temperate man is a leader who has his emotions in check. He needs to be sober-minded, a man who thinks clearly and keeps issues in perspective. He needs to be a level-headed person of good behavior. He lives an orderly life, hospitable. The word literally means to love a stranger. An elder should be friendly to newcomers and outsiders. And he needs to be able to teach. Maybe not in front of a crowd of 5,000, but certainly in a small band of hungry believers. He needs to be able to feed them. And then he says, not given to wine. In verse 8, the deacon should not be given to much wine, but here the elder needs to abstain completely. A pastor or an elder is in a decision-making position. And he could be called on at a moment's notice. A leader's senses should never be dulled by alcohol. His mind should never be cloudy or foggy from its influence. I mean, you don't want to have to call up your elder or your pastor in the middle of the night and you hiccup on the telephone. A pastor should not be given to wine. And in addition, not violent. A church leader doesn't push people around. He's not a spiritual bully. He doesn't use force or manipulation to get his way. He's not violent. A pastor and elder understands how to lead people with love and gentle persuasion. He's a peacemaker. And then he says, not greedy for money. Well, a pastor needs to be, be one who feeds the flock, not fleeces the flock. He doesn't love money. Once there was a toddler, he was playing in the living room and he found a quarter in the carpet. The little guy picks up the quarter and he sticks it in his mouth. Well, as soon as he did, his dad saw it. He shouted to his mom in the other room. He said, honey, quick, call the pastor. She said, you mean 911? Why would I call the pastor? The man replied, hey, our pastor can get money out of anybody. Call him. Well, he's not to be greedy for money. He's gentle, not quarrelsome. You know, it's been said a troublemaker is a guy who rocks the boat then convinces everyone else there's a storm at sea. <laughs> He's saying a person who's contentious or argumentative or has a combative personality should be disqualified from spiritual leadership. And not covetous or envious of other people or even of other pastors or other churches or other ministries. Not covetous. And then verse 4, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. This is the key. Does his wife and kids respect his authority? If a pastor can't win the respect of those who know him best, you have to question if he's living his life respectably. When it comes to pastor's kids, please remember, they're just kids. They'll make mistakes. No kids are perfect. My kids didn't sign up to be pastor's kids. I'm the pastor, not them. I've tried to protect my kids from unfair pressures. You see, it's not whether a pastor's kids will rebel. Hey, they're sinners. Sinners rebel. They're going to rebel. It's how a pastor responds in the wake of that rebellion. 
And coming down too hard is often as foolish as not coming down hard enough. Paul here says that a pastor's ability to manage his household is an indicator of how well he'll manage the house of God. Verse 5, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? You know, I found that being a pastor and a father have a lot of similarities with each other. Both require the combination of a strong hand and a sensitive heart. Pastors and dads, they have to rule or take charge. But they also have to love and take care. Family leadership is good training for spiritual leadership. And by the way, spiritual leadership is good training for family leadership. A pastor needs to be good at both. You know, it's strange. You can neglect your wife, and you can beat your kids, and you can still be a good doctor. But you can't neglect neglect your wife and beat your kids and be a good pastor. If you can't lead your family, then don't lead God's family. You know, years ago, it dawned on me, church members are fickle. They'll leave the church at the drop of a hat, and sometimes for the pettiest reasons. Yet at the end of the day, when all the smoke clears, my wife and kids are still going to be my wife and kids. I think a wise pastor prioritizes his family. And he shouldn't be a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Oh, often a new believer, he wins a few early victories. And guess where it goes? Straight to the frontal lobe. He gets inflated. He mistakenly thinks that the power is his, and he's wrong. And if he's a leader, when he falls, and he will, innocent people nearby will go down with him. This is why the newbie, the newcomer, needs time to mature before he leads. He says, for moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now, the snare of the devil is a progression, and you want to avoid it. Here's how the devil works on a leader. He puffs him up. He has a couple of the ladies tell him how wonderful he is at the door of the church on a Sunday morning. Puffs him up. That sets him up for failure. Then something knocks him off his pedestal. And then he gets buried in condemnation. Boy, that, that is the snare of the devil. You rush a new believer into leadership too soon and you play right into the devil's hands. The church needs seasoned men who have character. Not just clever characters. I'm often reminded, sometimes I'm haunted, by a scene from the movie Eight Men Out. Maybe you've seen it. It's about the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Eight Chicago White Sox players, they throw the World Series. And there's a scene when the great ball player, Shoeless Joe Jackson, he's leaving the building, he gets swarmed by reporters, and they're all shouting, Why did you do it, Joe? Were you in on the fix? Suddenly this little boy, probably 10 years old, the camera kind of focuses right in on his face and his voice rises above the din of the crowd. Everyone else grows silent. The boy looks at Joe as his hero and he says, Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. Joe can only hang his head and turns and he walks away in shame. I don't want any little boy in this church To ever look up at me and say, say it ain't so, Pastor Sandy. Say it ain't so. Verse 8, likewise deacons. 
Did you hear about the pastor and the deacon that went deer hunting together? When they arrived at the usual spot, they found a no trespassing sign. So the pastor remembered old man Jones' farm was just down the road. The deacon kind of balked. He said, yeah, but Jones, he's a mean, nasty, ornery cuss. We can't go down to his place. The pastor said, oh, don't worry, I know the man. When they rolled into the yard, he told the deacon to stay in the truck. He would go and get permission to hunt. Well, when the door swung open, there was Mr. Jones. Pastor, nice to see you. You're one of our favorite pastors. Every time we're in town, we kind of slip in the back of your church. We listen to you preach. You bless us. It's wonderful. Whatever I can do for you, just let me know. Well, obviously, permission to hunt wasn't a problem. But as the pastor walked away, the farmer asked him, he said, Pastor, he said, when you go out to hunt, he said, i got a crippled horse down there by the barn that needs to be put down. And I'm so fond of the old boy, I can't bring myself to pull the trigger. Would you shoot him for me? Well, as the pastor walked back toward the truck, he started thinking. He said, man, I can have a little fun with the deacon today. So he walks back. He's all mad. He's angry. He jerks his rifle off the rack of the truck. He snarls and he says, nobody's going to talk to me like that. He aims at the horse and blam! The horse drops to the ground. Suddenly he hears, blam, blam! He turns around, and there the deacon is. The smoke's pouring out the end of his barrel. And the deacon yells, come on, pastor. You got his horse, and I got two of his cows. Let's get out of here. Oh, boy. Elders and deacons, they make an interesting team, don't they? Elders look after the spiritual needs of the flock, whereas the deacons oversee the physical needs. The Greek word translated deacon means servant. Elder is a role of authority. Deacon is a post for service. I like to call the deacons the designated doers. In the book of Acts, the elders were chosen by Paul and the existing elders, while in Acts chapter 6, the deacons were chosen by the congregation there in Jerusalem. That's how we try to do it here at Calvary Chapel. And Paul tells us that the deacons of the church must be reverent. You want a deacon who's serious about the things of God. Not double-tongued, not loose-lipped. A gossip has no place in the leadership of the church as a deacon. Not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. I think all leaders need to be proven before they're appointed. You know, the golden rule on selecting church leaders is this. It's much easier to hire them than it is to fire them. That's why you need to test and vet them first. It reminds me of how General Patton selected his officers. He would line up the candidates and he'd tell them, All right, I want a trench eight feet long, three feet wide, and six inches deep. Then he'd walk away to a hidden spot and just watch. Patton recalls, he says, They puzzle over why I want such a shallow trench. They argue over whether six inches is deep enough for a gun emplacement. Some complain that the trench should be dug with power equipment. Others gripe that it's too hot to dig. Some complain that they should not be doing such lowly labor. Finally, one man will order, What difference does it make what he wants to do with this trench? Let's just get it dug and get out of here. And That's the man that the general would choose. You can learn a lot. By testing a man first. Verse 11 tells us, Likewise, their wives. Now here's an example of how Bible versions can mix interpretation 
with translation. The Greek text literally reads, likewise, the women. It's the King James Version that assumes that Paul was addressing a deacon's wife. Maybe he was, but there's another possibility. For there are other New Testament passages that suggest that there was a female order of deacon in the church, in the early church. In fact, Romans 16 verse 1 calls Phoebe a servant of the church. And that word servant is literally the word deacon. Deaconesses are sisters who serve. They serve the needs of the women of the church. You know, often in church life, situations arise that need a feminine touch. It's nice to have a special group of deaconesses available to meet those special needs. I like J. Vernon McGee's observation on this passage. He suggests that the reason women today are clamoring for roles in the church that have been reserved for men is because they've been denied their own rightful role. Here Paul lays out the character of a deaconess. They must be reverent, not slanderers. In the Greek, that word slanderers reads not she-devils, literally. You don't want a she-devil as a deacon. Devil means slanderer. She's got loose lips. I heard of a lady who had a great way to combat gossip. When someone approached her with a juicy tidbit, she would immediately insist that the two of them go directly to the subject of the gossip to see if the accusation was true. Boy, once word got out that that's how she handled things... Nobody wanted to approach her with any gossip. Hey, before you speak a word about anyone else, make sure it passes through three gates. Is it true? Is it needful? Is it kind? The deaconess should be temperate, faithful in all things. Women in leadership, too, should be self-controlled. Reminds me of the fellow who said of his wife, my wife should be in Congress. She keeps bringing bills to the house. The women in the church, they need to be disciplined and temperate in all areas. Those that are in leadership, even in their spending habits. In verse 12, Paul goes back to the deacons. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. A deacon who faithfully, who serves faithfully, gains the respect and admiration of the whole church. And you know, faithful service can often be parlayed into cloud and influence with which that person can go on to speak boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have an example of that in Acts chapter 6. You remember a deacon named Stephen who'd just been waiting on tables. He'd been serving the Lord in the church in practical ways. Then you get over into the next chapter and all of a sudden he's out in front preaching the gospel, working miracles. It's exciting to me when deacons become elders and then when elders become pastors. I think it's a sign of a growing church. Verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed... I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And here is the theme of 1 Timothy. How to conduct ourselves in the house of God. Which is the church of the living God. The pillar and ground of the truth. I mean, where else in the world today can you go to find the, church of God, the truth of God? Where else can you go? You can't go to the government. The government's not teaching the truth. 
Our school system has abandoned God's truth. You certainly don't get it through the media outlets. I mean, no longer, none of these, these institutions any longer support biblical truth. To the contrary, they're out there trying to undermine God's truth. There is only one place you can go today to find God's truth. And that is the church of the living God. We are the pillar and the ground of the truth. That's why you need to support your church. You need to believe in your church. If the gospel is an explosion of grace and truth, then think of the church of Jesus Christ as ground zero. Paul writes in verse 16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Oh, godliness is this mysterious, enchanting, romantic thing. Godliness is like a beautiful woman. She has a mystique about her. The more you get to know her, the more you realize you'll never figure her out. As Pascal once put it, I love God because I know Him. I adore Him because I cannot comprehend Him. Philosopher Mortimer Adler, he became a Christian at the age of 82. And he explains why. He said, I believe Christianity is the only logical, consistent faith in the world. But there are elements in it that can only be described as mystery. He says, my chief reason for choosing Christianity was that the mysteries were incomprehensible. What's the point of revelation if we can figure God out ourselves? I like that. That's some wisdom. And here Paul summarizes the gospel's mystique, the mystery of the gospel. He says, God was manifested in the flesh. How mysterious is that? The ancient of days became the child of time. The infinite became an infant wonder of all wonders. The gospel begins with amazement. And then Jesus was justified in the Spirit. He worked miracles, but not of His own hand. Jesus was justified by the Spirit. He leaned and trusted in the work of the Spirit in His life. And His faith is now our example. He was seen by angels. You know, throughout His ministry, Jesus often received angelic assistance. But what's more amazing is that for those 30 plus years that He walked this earth, every angel in the cosmos stopped in their tracks and stayed riveted on what He was doing. He was seen by angels. And he was preached among the Gentiles. How mysterious is this? What an unexpected twist. I mean, the Bible is a book written by Jews, for Jews, about Jews, to save Jews. And yet immediately, the king of the Jews is preached among the Gentiles. What a surprise. And then believed on in the world. A man who never traveled more than 100 miles from his own hometown has now become the Lord in every corner of the planet. What a mystery. And he was received up in glory. This is mysterious too. What began so inconspicuously with peasant parents in this little backwoods village called Nazareth in a Bethlehem stable in the womb of a young maiden extrapolated out and it crescendos in the clouds. The risen Lord Jesus ascends to glory for every eye to see. The Son of God shows up in the womb of a virgin, but then He goes up to heaven from a hill outside Jerusalem, and it's to that same hill He'll one day return. From arrival to ascension to second coming, great 
is the mystery of godliness. Chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy. Now in the first three chapters of this letter, Paul tells Timothy to use his Bible biblically, to stand up for sound doctrine, to fight the fight of faith. He says that the elders should be apt to teach, and he calls the church the pillar and the ground of the truth. Why all this emphasis on truth and right doctrine? Here's why. Because the closer we get to the last days, Paul says that false teaching will abound. You know, it's a shock to a new Christian to realize that not every so-called Bible teacher really teaches the Bible. Some speak, as Paul puts it, lies in hypocrisy. Realize not everything labeled spiritual is necessarily godly or biblical. I mean, just walk into the religion and spirituality section at Barnes & Noble Bookstore. And you'll find titles by everybody from Max Licato to the Dalai Lama. They're all on the same shelf. Today's world is fascinated with all things spiritual. But Paul tells Timothy that there are some deceiving spirits out there in the world that are spiritual. And there are some demons spewing doctrine that are spiritual. Don't forget when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. They joined his revolt and they've been busy ever since. These fallen angels are now deceiving spirits who inspire false doctrines. Their goal is to get you to depart from the faith. And here's Satan's advantage in this battle. He lies shamelessly. I mean, demonically inspired teachers, they tell people what they want to hear and what they'd like for you to hear. Unlike God, Satan has no obligation to the truth. This is why Paul says of these demonically inspired teachers having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. I mean, they've lost any integrity they once had. Their conscience has been cauterized. The spiritual nerve endings have been burned and desensitized. Did you know that can happen to a person? If you believe the lie long enough, you no longer, you lack the ability to differentiate the truth between the truth and the lie. They're no longer governed by intellectual honesty and integrity to the text, let alone the Holy Spirit. Their goal is political correctness, not theological accuracy. It can happen. And in these next few verses, Paul provides a rundown of what these false teachers will emphasize. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. From food to sex, the false teacher forbids what God considers to be good. Mormons don't drink coffee, but God created coffee beans. I've had some today, and they're good. When you grind them up, water them down. Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarian, but God created meat, beef, and sausage, and bacon. And boy, is bacon good. Roman Catholicism denies its priests the opportunity to marry. And enjoy healthy sexual intimacy. And it puts an undue pressure on the priests. But God created sex and he said that that was good. We'll see what happens later tonight. 
when God created beans and meat and sex, He said that it was good. And He hasn't changed His mind. You please God not through abstinence. My wife's still talking over there after that. It's been all weekend since I've seen her. You please God not through abstinence, but by thanking God for His many blessings and then using them for His glory. That's how you please God. You be grateful for what He's given you. Holiness isn't about what I can sacrifice for God. It's about what He sacrificed for me. Biblical spirituality involves the work of Jesus on the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, not self-deprivation. You know, in Colossians, we studied a heretical doctrine known as Gnosticism, that it taught strange forms of asceticism. Asceticism is any attempt to please God and grow spiritually through self-deprivation. And yet Paul couldn't have disagreed with this more. We become more spiritual not through the denial of God-given pleasures, but through faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work in our life in ordering our lives around God's will. You know, a quick view of church history and you'll discover how often these verses have been overlooked. Philip Yancey documents some extreme cases of Christians trying to grow more spiritual through fleshly techniques. He writes this, By the 4th century, monks were living on a diet of bread, salt, and water. Grazier monks lived in the forest and grubbed for wild herbs and roots. Some wore only a loincloth made of thorns. Apparently, the more they suffered, the more spiritual they supposedly were getting. Simeon Stylites set the standard for extremism. He lived atop a column for 37 years and prostrated himself 1,244 times a day. Where did people get these ideas? Simeon thought that the more he suffered, the more he could put himself through an ordeal, the more excruciating he could make his circumstances, the more spiritual it would produce, more spirituality it would produce in his life. And he was wrong. Boy, that was a bad experience when he got to heaven and found out he was wrong. You mean I did all that and I was wrong? Even today, there are Christians with the mistaken idea that self-deprivation is the key to spiritual maturity. That the more that I do without, the more spiritual I'll become. It's the old, if I don't smoke, drink, cuss, or run around with women who do, kind of attitude. But just keeping your nose clean doesn't alter your heart. That's what we forget. You can live in a cave and eat nothing but communion bread all day and still have a heart full of lust and pride and hate. What makes a person right with God is not what we do without, but it's what we take in. See, I become more pleasing to God by receiving His nature and His peace and His love and His joy and His forgiveness and His power and His acceptance. The more I receive of Christ, the more spiritual I become. Not what I do without. Jesus said it best in Matthew 15 verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of, his, out of the mouth that defiles a man. Real righteousness is a matter of the heart. Christianity is not me. It's not you trying to clean up our act. It's us trusting in Christ to make us new. Never forget, religion conforms us from the outside in, whereas God's Spirit transforms us from the inside out. 
In contrast to self-deprivation as a means to spiritual growth, in verse 4, Paul encourages us to enjoy what God created. He says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. I mean, think about this. Once you've thanked God for it, eating a big bowl of chocolate ice cream can be an act of worship. That's pretty cool. I've heard it put, the world says I live to pleasure. The world says I live to pleasure as I die to God. The ascetic says I live to God as I die to pleasure. But the Christian says I live to pleasure as I live to God. Christians are free to enjoy the pleasures that God created. A good cup of coffee, a juicy piece of meat, even wine or tobacco in moderation. Sexual relations with one's spouse. As long as my participation doesn't cause me or others to stumble, I can have at it. Certainly much depends on context. Sex and alcohol and tobacco are often misused. They're often used as sacraments of people who worship only pleasure. Take alcohol, for example. Often it gets misapplied rather than sanctified. I mean, seldom do folks sip wine and then read Scripture. It dulls, not heightens, our love for God normally. And there's always the danger of addiction. There are benefits to avoiding alcohol, but the act of doing so doesn't make one more pleasing to God. And in the proper context, there's nothing that God created that we can't enjoy and use for His glory. God created all of life's pleasures and we're free to enjoy them if doing so enhances our thanksgiving and praise for God and our dedication to God. Notice verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Nourish in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. People need to be instructed in God's Word. Christianity is a teaching enterprise. And a good minister is all about good doctrine. He says, but reject profane and old wives' fables. You know, it's astonishing that even in our high-tech society today, 20 million Americans still carry on their person a rabbit's foot or some other good luck charm. Isn't that amazing? Although it wasn't very lucky for the rabbit, you know. Paul encourages Timothy not to trust his destiny to silly superstitions, and I suggest you not either. But rather, exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. The weight room at the Calvary Chapel Bible College out in Marietta is called Prophet's Little Gym. (laughs) I like that. Physical exercise, it profits a little. But spiritual exercise, prayer, and Bible study, and service will profit much. You know, health clubs, they work off the business model where they sell far more memberships than their facility can accommodate because they know that after a few weeks, the people who sign up no longer visit. Why? Because exercise is hard work. And godly exercise is still exercise. It's been said, you don't stop exercising because you grow old. You grow old because you stop exercising. 
And that's true in your Christian life as well. If your Christian life has grown old and lost its vigor, it's probably because you've stopped exercising spiritually. You need to pray and read your Bible and study and turn off the TV. This is hard, but it's worth it. And here's why spiritual exercise is so vital. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Physical fitness has short-term benefits, but spiritual exercise shapes you up for all eternity. And I'd much rather have a sculpted spirit and a bulging faith that lasts for eternity than a well-toned corpse. Verse 10, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth. At the time, Timothy was probably in his mid to late 20s, and this was an issue. The Jewish priests didn't begin their ministries until they turned 30. Timothy was a mere kid. You know, when I was younger, I ran across folks who refused to join and become a part of Calvary Chapel because they insisted on having an older pastor. And I'll never forget Mrs. Aleman. Some of you might remember her. She was a little Cuban lady in our church. And on, on my 30th birthday, I, I'll never forget, she was so excited. She came up to me after the service and she, she said, Pastor Sandy, Pastor Sandy, I'm so glad you've turned 30. We no longer have a young pastor. I wasn't quite sure how to take that, whether to be happy about that or sad about that. She was happy. Paul tells Timothy not to be intimidated by those who frown on his youth. You know, spiritual maturity has little to do with natural age. You can be young and possess great spiritual depth, or you can be old and a spiritual baby. What matters most is years and time logged in God's Word and in prayer. Timothy tends to forget what people think. He needs to forget what people think, and he needs to get on with leading uh, the church that God has called him to. Paul tells him, he says, but be an example to the believers. Don't, don't worry about them worrying about your age. You be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You know, all spiritual leaders should first and foremost be an example to other believers in attitude and in action. He says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Timothy needs to read and study his Bible. The old adage is true. Leaders are readers. That especially is true when it comes to God's Word. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. You know, God gives to us spiritual gifts. When he anointed Timothy through the elders of the church, they prayed and they prophesied over him. And apparently he was given certain spiritual gifts at that time. But you have to use the gifts that you've been given. You remember in the parable of the talents, the man with one talent, he had it taken away because he had buried it and hid his talent. With ministry gifts, it's use them or lose them. And here he's encouraging Timothy to use the gift that God's given him. Verse 15, meditate on these things. 
Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. And I love this. Paul expects Timothy to be making progress. It's a sin when a pastor stops trying to get better at his craft. To me, imparting God's word is the most important occupation given to men. And I need to give it my best. I want to be a better pastor this year than I was last year. And finally, verse 16 Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You know, a pastor juggles a lot of balls. Hospital visits and counseling and meetings and administration. But the one ball that a pastor cannot afford to drop is the teaching of sound doctrine. If I don't make it to your hospital, or if I don't make it to pray with you at a certain time, I hope you'll forgive me. But I know this, if I don't feed you faithfully God's Word, you'll never forgive me. The salvation of souls and the spiritual health of God's people depends on the pastor's faithful parsing of the Scriptures. And that's why God's Word needs to be a pastor's most pressing priority. 